Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. Go the lockdown to quarantine edition. What? All right. I'm in a tracksuit really again. Is. Matching top and bottom. I'm really into at the moment Are matching you? track and $10 per piece. Bargain tracksuit. Mm. It looks it. What do you mean? Well, it's really poor quality. Well, oh. it was on sale and, and the top was only $10. So there you are. I'm wearing a cheap tracksuit and look terrible, but don't care. Kirsten and I were sending each other messages saying, don't look at me. I look terrible. Yeah, I said, I look like a sweaty beast. <laughs> sweaty so beast, like, she said. Yeah. Mm. And I'm wearing a, a T-shirt. It's a gr- deep green T-shirt. And when I put it on and then walked out of the house, I realized it's like a prison green. So it's very oh, appropriate for like lockdown. you Phyllis Frost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Who goes first? You go first. I went first last time. Okay. Uh, well, this actually starts with a, a message from Neil at the beginning. Uh, Dear Dee and Chanel, and I'm going to add Kirsten into that. Firstly, I love your show. Oh, Neil, stop Thanks, it. Neil? Stop it. You're embarrassing us. All the nice things. Uh, Neil says, I've been listening for about a year. Mm, you could try a little bit harder, Neil, because we've been going for longer than that. But anyway, um, mm-hmm. and have finally caught up. It's great to hear Chanel got married and that the day went so well. It did. I think about your wedding sometimes. It was so beautiful. Mm. Oh. Thank you. Um, I would like to hear you do a show about Harold Shipman, truly one of the most horrific and prolific killers ever caught. It also makes you wonder how much easier it is to kill people if you are trusted. I do have a dead body story as well, says Neil. He says, when I was living in the UK, I used to go cycling with the same group of people every week. And one Saturday I started out talking to this older man, but then I got dropped and was cycling along the route alone when I saw the same man lying on the side of the road with people giving him CPR. It turns out that he had hit a stationary van and nobody nobody knows why or if he had a heart attack beforehand. The worst part of it was that despite having seen him every week for several years, none of us knew his name. We all knew which bike he rode or almost anything about him. Cheers, Neil. P.S. I would certainly buy some merchandise. That's nice, Neil. Mm. We're discussing it. We're working on it. We're in talks. Well, yeah. it's, what do we have on the so – I think our only real catchphrase is nice things, nice things. I like moida, but I don't know if people want to work around with it. Chanel, can you say it for me? Yeah. Murder. Yeah. I don't know firstly how to <laughs> yeah. spell it. I'm thinking M-O-I. I don't yeah. know how you spell it either. And would people wear a, like a T-shirt with that on moida. it? Because it doesn't make sense out of context. No. Whereas nice yeah. things, nice things, that's, you know, that could I be anything. I think that's the best one. That's the yeah. one. Yep. And we own it. Hashtag nice things, nice things. <laughs> nice things, correct. Um, all right. So Neil suggests we talk about Harold Frederick Shipman, who was born on the 14th of January 1946 in Nottingham in England, one of three children. His father was a truck driver. Ian Shipman's mother, Vera, were devout Methodists. As a young good? man. That's really good. It's really good. Shipman it was good is. at rugby. And... I don't know how long I can keep it up for. And a good distance runner. And he was the vice captain of the athletics team. That's a really good vice good. captain. Yeah. And his final year of high school. Vice oh, school. I think I'm, I may be moving around England. I don't know what part this is from. But anyway. 
he was particularly close to his mother. I sound like someone out of Oliver, don't I? He was particularly close to his mother, so he took it really hard when he was 17 and his mother was diagnosed with lung cancer. In the later stages of her illness, she had morphine administered to her at home by a doctor. And Shipman saw how that gave her relief from her pain. Well, she eventually died in 1963. Three years later, he got married in 66 to Primrose May Oxtaby. That can only be an English name, can't it? Ox- Primrose Oxtaby. May Oxtaby. Oxtaby. Yeah. They had four children. Shipman studied medicine and when he graduated, he got a job at Pontefract General Infirmary. And in 1974, he started working as a general practitioner. At the Abraham Ormerod Abraham Ermerod Medical Center in Todd Morden. It wasn't long, that was less than a year before he was caught forging prescriptions of pethidine, oh. which he said was for his own use. So he was fined and he was sent to drug rehab. Another three years later, in 1977, he worked as a GP at the Donnybrook Medical Center in Hyde near Manchester. And he continued working as a GP in Hyde throughout the 1980s. So he set up his own surgery at 21 Market Street in 1993. And he was a respected member of the community. In 1983, he was interviewed in an edition of the Granada television documentary World in Action on how the mentally ill should be treated in the community. Okay. I actually looked for that, but I can't find it. Um, In March 1998, a doctor by the name of Linda Reynolds, who worked at Brook Surgery in Hyde, noticed that Harold Shipman was losing a strangely high number of patients. Does this sound a bit familiar? It's like a Doctor Death. It is yeah. like Doctor Death, isn't it? It's I can't not watch Death. that on Netflix. I've listened to the podcast, but I can't. Ugh, I can't watch the surgery parts. It's actually really good. Yeah. The the I normally hate it when they do yield, you know a recreation of something, but it's it's very right. well done. You would enjoy okay. it. Okay. Okay. Uh, so Linda, whose name is on a page which is now face down, uh, now it's upwards, Linda Reynolds, she wrote to John Pollard, who was the coroner for the South Manchester District. In particular, Mm -hmm. she was concerned about the large number of cremation forms for elderly women that Harold Shipman had needed countersigned. So the police investigated, but they couldn't find enough evidence to bring charges, so they closed the investigation. Now, I just want to make a note here. If... Shipman had been arrested at that time, three more people might not have died. So it all went quiet again until a taxi driver by the name of John Shaw went to police and he told them that he'd noticed that a lot of his elderly customers that he took to the hospital seemed to be in pretty good health on the way in, but then they died in Shipman's care. So he was able to give the police the names of 21 people that had died after being delivered in his taxi to Harold Shipman. Like, what a great taxi driver, but what yeah. the fuck is going on if a taxi driver has to be the one who, who's the whistleblower? They yeah. didn't listen to the earlier woman about it. Um, in June 1988, a lady by the name of Kathleen Grundy was found dead at her home. And the last person to have seen her alive was Harold Shipman. He signed her death certificate and he recorded the cause of death as old age. Kathleen had left a will. But her daughter, who happened to be a lawyer, Angela Woodruff, she was suspicious about it because it had cut her out of it and her children as well. But it left more than £380,000 to, guess who? 
Harold Shipman. And yes. Angela went to the police. They started investigating again and they exhumed Kathleen Grundy's body and they found traces of heroin. And um, heroin is sometimes used in pain con- as pain control for terminally ill cancer patients. So police asked Harold Shipman for an explanation and he claimed that Kathleen was a heroin addict. And he showed them comments about her drug problems that he'd made in his medical journal on his computer. But they did a forensic examination of his computer and they found that those had been written after her death. So on September the 7th, 1998, Harold Shipman was arrested. Police found that he owned a brother typewriter, which was the kind that had been used to make Kathleen's forged will. So two journalists, Brian Whittle and Jean Ritchie, they wrote about this case, a book's called Prescription for Murder, and they reckoned that Shipman forged the will because he wanted to be caught. So the police then went back to investigate other deaths that Harold Shipman had certified. They chose 15 of them as specimen investigations and they found a pattern of his administering lethal doses of diamorphine and signing patients' death certificates and then creating false medical records to say that they had been in poor health when they hadn't. So if they had been properly monitoring all the statistics, they would have spotted that something was up and maybe caught him back a couple of years earlier when there were 67 excess deaths in females aged over the age of 65. Mm. It was two years before they caught him. And by then, 119 people had died. So Shipman was charged just with the murders of 15 of those women, the 15 cases that they were using as like example cases. His lawyers tried to have Kathleen Grundy's case tried separately because hers was the only one where there was an apparent motive for the killing, which was the will. But they lost the his lawyers were told they would couldn't try that separately. That was put in with the other cases. The prosecutor, Richard Enrique's QC, said he was exercising the ultimate power of controlling life and death. A witness for the prosecution, Dr. John Grenville, said that Shipman came across as being very arrogant and the only way he could have gotten away with what he did was by thinking that he was invincible. So they got a psychiatrist to look at Harold Shipman. And he said that he showed the symptoms of a classic necrophiliac, whereas he enjoyed some sort of sexual gratification in the act of inducing death. So on January 31st, 2000, after six days of deliberation, the jury found Harold Shipman guilty of 15 counts of murder and one count of forgery. He was sentenced to life, never to be released. He, um, to be served concurrently, plus four years for forging the will. Strip, strip, uh, Shipman, sorry, was struck off the General Medical Council um, registry. He has consistently denied his guilt. His wife Primrose also maintained his innocence. She sat in on every one of the fifty-two days in court. He didn't take very well to life in jail. Apparently, he would just wallow in self-pity and sit there crying in his cell. At 6.20am on the 13th of January 2004, the night before his 58th birthday, Harold Chipman hanged himself in his cell at HM Prison in Wakefield, HM Prison Wakefield. Some of his victims' family said they felt cheated because it meant they would never have the satisfaction of his confession or his answers as to why he committed his crime. And the Home Secretary, David Blunkett, said, you wake up and you receive a call telling you Shipman has topped himself and you think, is it too early to open a bottle? And then you discover that everyone's very upset that he's done it. So the Home Secretary was thrilled that he killed himself. Uh, Some were angry at the prison service for allowing the suicide to happen. 
The Sun newspaper ran a front page headline which said, Ship, Ship, Hooray. The oh, British, because his yeah. name was Shipman, the British tabloids. Yeah, incredible. That's, yeah, right. Uh, Primrose Shippen received a full national service pension. She would not have been entitled to it if Shipman had lived past 60. So I do wonder a little bit whether he did it in order for her to get that pension. So his body was given to her. Police suggested that she not bury him in case the grave was attacked. So he was cremated in 2005. Um, But they did it outside normal hours so it wouldn't draw a crowd. Um, Yeah. In 2001, a uh, West Yorkshire police detective led an investigation into 22 of the West Yorkshire deaths and it found that Shipman had killed at least 218 of his patients between 1975 and 1998. And there possibly could have been more than that. Most of his victims were elderly women who were in good health before he killed them. So... um, they suspected that in the very early stages of his career, he'd killed another three page, patients, including a three-year-old girl. In total, 459 people died while under his care in wow. between 1971 and 1998. So it's not sure how many of those were actually murder victims um, as he was often the only doctor to certify their death. And they changed the way that forms had to be completed after that. I suspect that he did it. Um, If his own mother's death was as a result of being given morphine, perhaps he started killing people trying to take away their suffering the same way his mother's suffering was taken away, but then it Mm. escalated into something more. Yeah, Mm. maybe. That's a lot of people, though. Yeah. So there was a TV documentary called Faking It, Tears of a Crime, where experts in psychology, body language and speech analysis have a look at Shipman's behaviour in TV and police interviews. And they pinpointed a moment, because remember he denied that he did anything wrong the whole time, but they pinpointed this moment where he subconsciously gave himself away in one of the police interviews. So in 2001, this was after he'd been convicted, Shipman was questioned about more suspicious deaths that happened back when he was a GP in Todd Morden in West Yorkshire and in this interview in the video he's behaving like an absolute spoiled brat he's he's sitting on a chair he actually turns his back to the police he refuses to speak to them and he even closes his eyes like just like a petulant child so I'm just going to play you something here it's part of the police interview first you'll hear the narrator and then you'll hear the voice of body language expert Cliff Lansley so he's studying Harold Shipman's breathing because remember his back is to them so he's just watching how his shoulders are going up and down as he's breathing Um, so he's studying that while the police show him a picture of one of his victims Elizabeth Pierce have a listen to this Shipman was shown a photograph of Elizabeth Pierce aged 84 the first of three of his patients to die on the same day in January 1974. That's Elizabeth Pierce. So he's saying nothing, he's silent, we can't see his face, and his back is to the interviewers. What chance have the police got? Uh, The three ladies there, it's the elderly lady dressed in black. Shipman's breath rate is four seconds. Very little pause, then breathe out for four seconds. This is his baseline. However, when he's presented with a photograph of Elizabeth Pierce. That's Elizabeth Pierce. The three ladies there, it's the 
elderly lady dressed in black. You can't see the photograph, his eyes are closed. Dr Shipman's eyes are closed. However, he must be experiencing fear. How do we know? Because in fear, like our ancestors, if they were threatened by a, a large animal, they'd freeze in the grass so they couldn't be seen. Then they're not an easy target. That freeze response is a psychophysiological reaction that's subconscious. That's Elizabeth Pierce. This is the point she stops breathing. That's Elizabeth Pierce. And he knows the picture is there. And watch the next movement. He doesn't breathe for nine seconds. So Elizabeth Pierce, that name is a problem for him. So for just a few seconds, his breathing changes dramatically. So um, that was just a little interesting side note. That was Harold Shipman. Thank you, Neil, for tipping us off to that story. Mm. Mm. Bloody hell. Bloody hell, exactly. All right. Well, mine's mine's just horrific, full disclosure. Um, We're going to Indianapolis and it's 1965 and we're – focusing on a girl called Sylvia. Sylvia came from a really large family, but they had they didn't have much money basically. Her dad was poorly educated and he worked several different jobs to make ends meet. But amongst those jobs, he worked in factories and other things. He also worked in carnivals selling food. He and his wife decided in the summer of 1965 that they would go and travel with the carnival to work, and that meant they had to find somewhere to put their kids while they went off and worked. Oh, no, I know this story. Do you? Yes, tell it. It's awful. Oh, it's horrendous. It's horrendous. So the eldest child, Diana, she was actually an adult, so she didn't need to be looked after. Then there were the boys uh, who were placed with their grandparents, and that left Sylvia and Jenny. Jenny had polio, and she needed extra care, and her parents were introduced to a woman called Gertrude, Banizewski, I probably said that wrong, but she agreed to take on both the girls for $20 a week. Now, Gertrude had children of her own. She had Paula, who was 17, John, who was 12, Stephanie, who was 15, Marie, who was 11, Shirley, who was 10, James and Dennis, who were 18 months. So she's got her hands full as it is, but she takes on these girls for $20 a week. So when the girls moved in, there was tension, and that tension was most noticeable between uh, Sylvia and Gertrude's oldest child, who was 17, uh, Paula. So there was already this tension, but then it starts to go downhill for really everyone when the check from the girl's parents fails to show up on time. This sent Gertrude crazy. She was furious and she slapped both of the girls. Um, and even though the check eventually arrived the ne- very next day, the damage was already done. Once she had started abusing the girls, she just did not stop. She had two weapons of choice. One was a paddle, a wooden paddle, and the other was a belt, and she would use them on the girls for anything she saw fit for punishment. The girls were um, exchanging empty bottles for, for money up at the shops, and for that they were beaten. At one point she thought that Sylvia had stolen money um, from her, so she burnt her fingers with lit matches Um, And when Gertrude didn't have the strength to beat the girls, she would get her children to do it, specifically uh, her 17-year-old daughter. But it wasn't just an 
in-house torture session because before long the neighborhood children would also come to the house and take part in torturing the girls they would beat sylvia and they would force her to undress and to sexually and they would sexually assault her with different objects um and after all the torture they would then force her into a scalding hot bath to cleanse her of her sins Mm. They would burn her with cigarette and rub urine and feces on her. I've watered this down. Yep. It's horrific. You know how I know it? I actually got it ready to do and I thought, no, it's actually too hardcore. So you're doing a really good job because okay. you're conveying the horror that poor girl lived through but without yeah. the gory details that I had yeah. written and then went, no, can't do no, it. No, I watered them down because yeah. it's actually terrible. There is a movie that was done about this. Oh, really? You go, yes, you can go and look it up and, and watch it or you can go and Google all the things that were done to Sylvia. But it is just – I had to leave big chunks of this story out because it was it's just horrific. It's Sylvia Likens, isn't it? L- yes. L-I-K-E-N-S, yep. So as the torture spiraled out of control, Sylvia was eventually thrown into the basement of the house. Um, and it was around this time that Gertrude told the other children that Sylvia was a prostitute and she carved into Sylvia's stomach the words, I'm a prostitute and I'm proud of it. But fuck? Yeah, but she couldn't finish the carving. So she asked one of the boys in the neighborhood to help her do that. And he did that. So it was very much a pack mentality yeah. at this point. Um, after a while, Sylvia began to die. And I've specifically used the words began to die because her death was so excruciatingly slow. Um, she was hardly eating. She was getting beaten. Um, she was kept in the dark. For a really long time and this this just went on for days and days and days um when gertrude realized that sylvia was dying she forced her to write a note saying that the neighborhood boys were the ones who had beaten her so basically trying to get herself out of the shit before sylvia died and it was around this time that gertrude also came up with a plan to dump sylvia in the woods with the note now sylvia heard this and she tried to escape, but they caught her and threw her back in the basement. So at this point, Sylvia starts to really go downhill. She's struggling to talk. She's weak. Um, and Gertrude and the children start to panic. So they try to feed her at this point. Now, she can't string a word together. She's confused. She's in such need of medical help that... There is no way feeding her was going to change anything, but they try to feed her. They're trying to feed her off food as well at this Mm. point, but she can't drink or eat at all. So they wash her and they put her in clean clothes and they lay her on a bed. And when I say they lay her on a bed, it's a mattress in a room and she eventually dies. When she dies, the abuse doesn't finish. Initially, Gertrude beats her corpse with a book, shouting, faker, faker, in order to try to get her to wake up. However, um, she starts to panic and is instructed to call the police. When they arrive, um, Gertrude takes them to Sylvia. She's emaciated. She's been bludgeoned and her entire body is mutilated. She's lying on a soiled mattress in the middle of a room. Um, Gertrude hands them the letter to kind of get herself out of trouble and claims that she had been doctoring the child for an hour prior to her death 
and had been trying to fix her wounds by applying rubbing alcohol to them, but she had died. Um, her cause of death officially was brain swelling, internal, internal hemorrhaging of the brain and shock induced by her extensive skin damage. She was also suffering from extreme malnutrition at the time of her death. Um, the autopsy of her body revealed rather that she'd suffered in excess of 150 separate wounds across her entire body, in addition to being extremely emaciated at the time of her death. The wounds themselves varied in location, nature, severity, and stage of healing, showing that she had been beaten and tortured over a really long period of time. They included burns, severe bruising, extensive muscle and nerve damage, and her vaginal cavity was almost swollen shut. Um, on May 19, 1966, a jury found Gertrude guilty of first-degree murder, while Paula, her daughter, was found guilty of second-degree murder. Um, her son and John, another neighbourhood boy, were also convicted of manslaughter. Gertrude and her daughter Paula were sentenced to life terms at the Indiana Women's Prison in Indianapolis, and the boys were sentenced to two 21-year terms at the reformatory in Pendleton. In December 1985, Gertrude was released on parole. She changed her name, though, to Nadine Van Fossen and moved to Iowa, where she lived in obscurity until her death from lung cancer in 1990. And that's the watered-down version. It's so horrific. You just think, and she had no one to turn to and no one to help her. And Yeah. Oh. It's absolutely awful, isn't it? Uh, that, sure it's they're... the pack part yeah. of that where, where it's yeah. a bunch of people against one innocent person. That's the oh, that's really hard to take, isn't it? Yeah, it's mm. awful. It's Terrible. absolutely awful. I just had a thought. Did we talk about Sabrina and Basma? Shall I do that just to raise the mood just a little bring bit? bring it up. A Go on. Yeah, please, um, we need it. This arrived in our inbox on Monday, June 28. Okay. Hello, Chanel, Dede and Kirsten. We heard your desire for an update, re-us, brackets and our friendship, in Ep 120 of the pod and thought we must oblige. We are now well into our second year of university. Gosh, they're grown up now. What? What? Mm. Having started emailing you when we were only in year 11. Unfortunately, we aren't at the same uni. Oh, no. Oh. So we haven't been seeing each other as often, oh no, as we would have liked, but our friendship is still going strong. We've just been plunged into the two-week Sydney lockdown. Oh, that's a few weeks ago now. Oh, heavens. Yeah. Um, so that's put a dampener on things. Alas, we haven't seen any dead bodies, which is slightly unfortunate, but we have been continuously following along over the years. We'll make sure to let you guys know, let you guys know as soon as there's even a whiff of a dead body story coming our way. In the meantime, we're sending love and best wishes as we struggle through the pandemic and its unfortunate side effects. Nice things, nice Aww. things. Basma and Sabrina, bless their oh little my cotton God. socks. I love them. Oh, I love them too. We both sound like Jamay. I listen. We oh my too. God. Have you listened to the Jamay podcast? I didn't even know it was I there, and there then was I one. binged it. Yes, there is one, and it's it's as you would expect it to be. I can't even think what it's called. I think uh, Jamazing it's called. <laughs> Jamazing? Yep. And so the premise is that, Jama for those who haven't, aren't familiar, Chris Lilly, one of his characters, he's a schoolgirl called Jamay, entitled, privileged, mm. all the rest of it, um, <laughs> egotistical. And so the premise is that she has to make the podcast for a school project. 
and <laughs> but okay. she's she's discovered sex. It sounds like she's just rooting anything that has a pulse. <laughs> oh god! Um, and she's vaping, um, uh, vaping something. I can't think what it, I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's quite funny. It's quite full on. You have to sort of like divide yourself up from you know don't listen to too many at once. Okay, um, okay. I like that. Yeah. Jamazing. Jamazing just... is a really good name. Yeah. It is Clever. good. I'm going to start. Go on. Yeah, This go. is from Kimberly. She says, hey, from Oregon. I love that people in the States listen to us. Same. Um, she says, I enjoy your podcast a lot. Especially enjoyable is the obvious friendships that come through during your banter. And she put banter in inverted commas, which maybe, do they not use the word banter? Oh, no, they do use banter. Yeah, in, they do. In the I States, feel like it's English. Um, it is English, yeah, I think. Bants. She says, I'd like to tell you a story of my husband, Trent, and myself finding a dead body while hunting for sh- – what's chanterelle? Chanterelle. What is that? Mushrooms. Hunting for them? Hunting for mushrooms. Yeah. Are you sure? I'm Googling it. I don't trust that you're right. Okay. No. I've pictured them Oh, my God. That. She is right. What? Thank you. Been on this earth a long time. I'm just picturing them in camo, just hunting for mushrooms. (laughs) Right? When you say hunting, I don't automatically put that together with mushrooms. But anyway, while driving on the logging roads of the Coburg foothills of the Willamette Valley, Willamette Valley, I saw what I thought looked to be the perfect spot to hunt. We got out of the truck to look around when I spotted a huge cut log. It had to have been seven feet high, laying on its side, the perfect place to find the chanterelle. Am I saying that right, Dee? I think chanterelle? so, yeah. yeah. It's got the mushrooms. I'm just going to keep saying mushrooms yeah. every time that the, word appears. The fungi. Yeah, the fungi. As I approached, I started to smell something bad, roadkill kind of bad. I walked around to the other side of the log and spotted a rib cage oh. and a blanket. I did a very abrupt about face and ran straight to my husband. I almost shit my pants. I told him what I saw after a brief discussion about who needed to investigate me or him. We decided to call the sheriff. The deputy met us at the bottom of the road and we led him to the site. I was so afraid of what we had found. The rib cage was so small and the blanket had dinosaurs on it. The deputy grimly took on the task of lifting the blanket to see the rest of the body. Oh, no. It was a dog. She's really led us down the garden path on this. My husband and I were relieved but sad for the dog. So we we, we, we buried it. We reburied it and covered it with a rock. Oh, and they put R.I.P. Buck. They said we later found the collar. So that's one of my dead body stories. Until next time, Kimberly. We don't do dead dogs on this podcast. Well, we have, but people don't like hearing about them. Mm. I need it. We need a warning up yeah, top. Yeah, I think I so. I blindly read these, but I am glad that they did nice things for the dog. Yeah, me too. So am I. All right. Well, I've got one, and I've got to apologise because I can't. I haven't put the name on it of who sent it to us, but you'll know who you are because it says hi and hi from Denver. Do you think Denver's the person's name or they're coming to us from Rocky Mountain High in Colorado? I reckon it's their name. Rocky Mountain High in Colorado. No, I think it's American. It just feels American to me. I want to imagine that Mm. it's American. Hi and hi from Denver. 
I do apologise. So, look, I sincerely, I've been distracted while Chanel was talking, trying to find the uh, origin of this email. But anyway, let's stick. Let's do it. My GF calls her mother every single day. It staggers me. They are both great people, but I'm not a talker. The GF's mum lives. Yep, mom is spelt with an mom. O. Yeah, mom. mom. Yep, mom lives in a luxury high rise about five minutes away. Why do they ring on the talk on the phone every day then? They're five yeah. minutes away. Why don't they just go over? Save the money on the phone call. Oh, I can't understand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was always lucky to call her moms. In her 80s, we would visit every couple of weeks or so. She needed oxygen, but I would be there. Uh, but hang on. But I would need help from her with the questions on Jeopardy. None of this has anything to do with her. Okay. Thank you. Um, I wish I had the name. I want to know who's talking to us. It's an 18-story building. As you go up, there are units that have an extended bit, like a porch that looks out over the city. I don't know why this bothers me. It just does. The GF and I – hang on. Yeah, the ex- I don't like hanging over. I don't like bal- – you know, I don't like balconies. Mm. hate them. You don't like yeah. heights. Well, no. I don't like things hanging out where they can fall down. I always think things are going to collapse and fall down. The GF and I had just walked out of the door and she was a dozen or so steps ahead of me and a person fell and hit the patio furniture about three oh. feet from me. Oh. As you leave the building, you can go to the left or right and walk along the small fences of tenants who have their patios, lots of flowers, furniture and love. Then off to the parking lot for visitors or the parking for the owners. It doesn't matter. My GF walks off to get to the car and a second later, this man lands inside the first floor back porch. Like everyone else on the first floor, there's a decorative three feet tall steel fence that separates property from the walkway. He didn't hold his hand out to me, of course. We could have shaken hands. It was an explosion of cheap white patio furniture. The GF turned and we knew what had happened. Well, she did. She started to run back and I, she told me that I pointed away and said something about an outhouse. Is this making sense or is it just me? Uh, he was a mess but breathing, <laughs> sort of, underwear an old white T-shirt with I don't know. He was in his underwear and his side had split and a bit of his insides had come out and down under his shirt. His eyes were wide open and if there was anything inside, it was terror. He destroyed a lot of plastic furniture. Look, whatever your name is, let's not focus on the furniture any longer. He had destroyed a lot of plastic furniture when he hit. I haven't seen what agonal breathing is, as in when you're agony. Is that a word? Agonal? I don't know. Never heard it. Breathing when you're I in agony? So. Um, but he was breathing, and while he was on his back, his hips were flattened, but he was trying to move them. I hopped the tiny fence, and I'm on his shoulder, and all I'm thinking is ABC, ABC. That must be like a Dr. ABC. Yep. And this poor man... I really wanted to try and scoop him up and take him somewhere. I tried mouth to mouth, but the air was making a fizzy noise on his shirt. Oh, Oh, no. Why didn't I read this before I started reading it? Uh, Of course, he had stopped moving. He smelled like wet meat. No bloody horror, but the horror that I felt. Later, I talked to the head of security who said that I should have come to him before I did anything. Then said that this happens at least once a year. And that the bottom residents are empty because oh. it happens. Oh, 
So no one wants to live at the bottom line because people are always landing. <sighs> oh, my Lord. I have no idea what he looked like. Odd, yet I've had that nightmare after nightmare where I look over the fence and see the face of the cadaver. Also odd because his face and hands and feet were covered. You know why. But I took a peek. What? That was all over the shop. Ooh. Oh, my there God. You are. Mm. Hardcore. Um, so that's technically us for now, Chanel. So should we say goodbye to you? Will you be lonely in... Can we send you anything? Yeah. No, I don't need anything. I'm fine. I've got biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly as good as me and Kirsten, but not quite. Correct. Can't correct. Wait to see. I'll be out soon. We'll see your beautiful face when you're back here in town. All right. I can't wait. Okay. Now, just before we go, we're going to we're going to let Chanel go because her headphones are dying. We, <laughs> <laughs> that'll be on. The I'm t- nervous with every word I speak. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, we've just got take up more power if they have to absorb noise. I don't know. One more little thing here to leave you with, and this was an interview that I did on my radio show, but we just thought it was probably of interest to people who listen to the Dead Bodies podcast. So, because a lot of anatomy students are studying in lockdown as students in all sorts of forms of schooling are this year, they're not getting the practical hands-on experience operating on real cadavers because they're not in at the universities. So we did an interview about this with Associate Professor Quentin Fogg, who's the Head of Clinical Anatomy at the Melbourne University, and he very kindly gave us his permission to use that interview from 3AW. We haven't asked 3AW for permission, but we'll do that, Kirsten, won't we, before? Sure. <laughs> um, we just thought if it's of interest... Here it is. Here's Professor Quentin Fogg. And after that, you'll hear Tony. And if you want to send us a message about your dead body, send it to deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com. And I promise next time I do a feedback, I'll have the name that's attached to it. Quentin Fogg joins me now. He's the head of clinical anatomy at Melbourne University. Good afternoon, Quentin. Hi, Didi. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I love your name. It sounds like something out of a Dickensian novel. I get that a bit, but thank you. I bet you do. (laughs) All right. So, uh, I mean, this is a real problem, isn't it? If students are not able to handle a cadaver, how important is that in their training to actually get used to to seeing, feeling and dealing with a real human body? Yeah, well, I think our use of body donors is, is essential in anatomy education and it might not be just for the the facts, you know, learning anatomy, but it's all the things that we call the hidden curriculum, which is the mechanical nature of it, looking at a person and feeling how the structures are put together, handling instruments, and even the subconscious component of it, thinking about what it means to be a person um, and dealing with death and all these challenges that a young medical student doesn't really have an opportunity to face prior to that. Is there a good supply of donated bodies at the moment? And I'm also wondering whether you need to make any special, uh, you know, has COVID complicated that? Do you have to be sure that the bodies are free of any diseases or anything like that when they're Yeah, we've in? always um, made sure that our donors are safe and, and we're not worried about um, donor numbers. We're uh, all around Australia. Most donor programs are very well supported by the public, uh, including here in Victoria. Um, the, the challenge is getting our students back into that space uh, and allowing them to get that full range of an educational experience, uh, which I must say everyone across Australia, as far as we can see, has done an extraordinary job providing great anatomical education online over the last year and a half. Um, but how we get those students back into the lab and experience those broader learning objectives is a big challenge. So what is it that they're actually missing out on? 
I think a large part of it is, is what we bundle under that hidden curriculum, which is really understanding how the body is put together in a true three-dimensional way. So understanding where structures might be at risk when doing a particular procedure or examining your patient where is a it's not a safe place to squeeze too hard because it will be painful. All of those sorts of things are much easier to convey in person and being able to see those structures in a real way and all these other things that come with a, an, a, a true anatomy lab experience, which is thinking about yourself, thinking about their handling instruments, all of those things. I imagine you get all sorts of different reactions from students when they actually come to the point where they have to handle a dead body. What are some of the common reactions that you see? Oh, the full spectrum of them. We uh, and most schools in Australia put a lot of emphasis on respect for our donors and walking the students through a process that makes them engage with these donors as people. So they're not an object, they're not a thing to learn from. So we do see a full range of people getting upset, feeling a bit unwell, some people feeling um, empowered to, to look at things that they were nervous about before. And it's all very unpredictable. So the very enthusiastic student could end up being the student that's very upset and shaken by it. And we embrace all of those reactions and help them through those and develop into a better clinician as a result. Uh, and Quentin, does it ever happen that somebody will get to that practical stage and realise that it's just not for them, that they can't cope with dealing yeah, with death absolutely. in that way? Yeah, I think it happens. Uh, in my experience, it's happened rarely, um, but it has happened. The vast majority of cases when somebody does have that negative reaction to the space, it just encourages um, a deeper conversation. And I always say to those students that this is a great sign. It's showing that you've got empathy for these people and that you're thinking about the humanistic side of things. And it probably means you're going to be a fantastic clinician. Um, I mean, I certainly want people looking after me that care about my well-being. Um, on a deeper level and so that conversation is quite difficult it's difficult for us can be quite emotional for us as well um, but I think it's a, a wonderful discussion to have in those circumstances and in the vast majority of cases those students come through with flying colours. What are some of the ethical rules and, uh, and sort of just the measures that you take when you're dealing with a person who's donated their body f for learning? For instance, do you do you cover the face or, or what are some of the things that you sort of take into account? So we always tr uh, strongly push a respectful agenda. So the, the, the way that people do this differs in different institutions, but that's the, the, the clear baseline is everyone's trying to be as respectful as possible. So we do things like only unveiling areas that are relevant to what's being studied at the moment. Um, and more importantly, I, I use the word purposeful a lot with my students. What you're doing with this individual person should be purposeful. So you're coming in with a plan, you're well aware of what you're meant to be exploring and understanding and using language that empowers them to do that um, you know, with confidence. Yeah. Uh, and Quentin, how concerned are you given that these, the current crop of uh, students undergoing surgical training, they're not getting this experience with cadavers? How, how concerned about you uh, are you about what that means for those who are going to be operating on human bodies in the future? Well, I think it's a long journey that every uh, medical student goes through if they intend to go into surgery. So the, the worry is not so much from a surgical perspective because we will have many opportunities over subsequent years to engage with these people uh, and particularly through ongoing learning opportunities that we have, you know, 
universities like mine at the University of Melbourne, we have lots of opportunities for people to study after their medical school um, graduation to come back and learn things at a higher level. So I'm, I'm confident we'll be able to address any issues that arise through COVID a few years down the track. The challenge is what's happening with those medical students now and how we can support them in these next couple of years of their training. Gosh, it's extraordinary stuff. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Quentin Fogg there, Associate Professor in Clinical Anatomy at Melbourne University. Dead Bodies is created by D.D. Dunleavy and Chanel Vela and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.